Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, What Are You Looking For? It's based upon the lectionary readings for January 19th, 2020. Our gospel reading this week is drenched in the language of looking and seeing. I saw the Spirit, John says, after a dove descends on the newly baptized Jesus. And again, I myself have seen and have testified. Look, here's the Lamb of God, he tells his disciples the next day. Jesus turns and sees those same disciples and invites them to come and see where he's staying. Later, Andrew tells his brother Simon that he has found the Messiah. The passage ends with Jesus looking at Simon before renaming him. Looking, seeing, finding. Our lectionary revolves around these actions. The gospel opens as John the baptizer sees, testifies, and humbly allows his disciples to leave so that they can follow Jesus. Jesus then invites those same disciples to keep looking, come and see. But first he asks them a zinger question about seeing, a question we would do well to ask ourselves. What are you looking for? It's the first recorded question Jesus asks his disciples, and I believe it's a question for the ages. What are you looking for? In your heart, in your secret and quiet places, what are the hungers that drive you forward in your life of faith? Why do you still have skin in this game we call Christianity? As you say goodbye to an old year and welcome a new one, what are you hoping for, asking for, looking for in your spiritual life? Do you know? I've been mulling over this question all week. When I go to church, when I pray, when I open the pages of scripture, what am I looking for? Am I looking for anything? Or am I just going through the motions of a religious life I inherited from my parents? Am I seeking consolation, affirmation, belonging, certainty? Am I looking to gain power or to surrender it? Do I want to know or can I consent to trust? Am I looking to arrive or to journey? I suppose it's no surprise that the disciples who first hear the question simply dodge it. Perhaps like us, they don't quite know what to say. Whatever the case, instead of attempting a response, they ask Jesus their own question. Where are you staying? Which I take to mean, where exactly are you headed, Rabbi? Where and how and with whom are you aligned? What will home look like if we hang out with you? What's our final destination as your potential followers? Tell us up front what we need to know so that we can pin you down, locate you, understand you. Jesus' response, a maddening one, concrete and elusive at the same time, come and see, which is to say, we have to follow Jesus all the way home if we want to know where he is and what he's about. He won't be pinned down. He won't fit into any box we try to stick him in. He's not the type who hunkers down, he moves. At times he will not be easy to seek or to find. In short, the path that leads to him will become clear only when we decide to walk it. Hence the question we must ask ourselves at every turn. What are we looking for? Jesus or something else? Looking, seeing, finding, these are the things we are called to do not once, but over and over again as Christians. 
This is the heart of discipleship, not to hasten the end of our search, but to pursue it ever more deeply and intentionally. To cultivate a willingness to look, a willingness to see and be seen, a willingness to tell the truth about what we have found, a willingness to venture forth again, even when we don't know where home is. The invitation to come and see is an invitation to leave our comfortable vantage points and dare to believe that just maybe we have been limited and wrong in our, in our certainties about each other, about God, and about the world. To come and see is to approach all of life with a grace-filled curiosity, to believe that we are holy mysteries to each other, worthy of further exploration. To come and see is to enter into the joy of being deeply seen and deeply known, and to have the very best that lies hidden within us, called out and called forth. Of course, seeing is always selective. We have choices when it comes to what we look for, what we prioritize, what we name and what we call out in each other. The selves we present to the world are layered and messy, and it takes both love and patience to sift through those layers and find what lies at the core of who we each are. But there is great power in that sifting, too. Something healing and holy happens to us when we are deeply seen, known, named, and accepted. Today's gospel story is not just about our seeing. At its core, it is about what Jesus sees. It's a story about Jesus' way of looking, about what becomes possible when we dare to experience his gaze. Jesus looks at John's disciples and calls forth their hunger, their curiosity, their hope, and their trust. He looks at Simon and sees Peter, the rock. He looks at us and sees what lies beneath the fumbling, the fear, the mixed motives, and the doubts. Each of us, in other words, benefits from a second look, and a third and a fourth, to offer that second look, that deeper, kinder, and more penetrating look, is grace. It is the gracious vision of Jesus, and it is the vision we are called to practice in a world that too often judges and condemns at first glance. Is there anything, after all, that feels lonelier than the experience of being unseen, misunderstood, and prematurely dismissed? And is there anything more life-giving than the experience of being seen for who we really are, deep down beneath the fragile defenses we hold up out of fear? What are you looking for? What are you looking for when you approach the people around you? Is your seeing fear-filled and narrow, or is it spacious and brave? Are you looking to judge or looking to bless? The thing is, only when we have been seen in the profoundly healing way of Jesus will we find ourselves able to see others as the beloveds of God. It is when we have been loved right down to the core of who we are that we find the capacity to embrace other people, as Jesus embraced every disciple, every sinner, every doubter, and every believer who crossed his path. May we look as he looks. May we want what he wants. And may we seek the one who always and everywhere seeks us. For books this week, Dan reviews When I Spoke in Tongues, A Story of Faith and Its Loss by Jessica Wilbanks. Memoirs about the loss of Christian faith are now standard fare among major publishers. When done well, like this one by Jessica Wilbanks, these stories don't just take pot shots at their target. Rather, they explore the ambiguities that surround the loss of one's assumptive world and the subsequent irreligious alternatives. Wilbanks, for example, begins her book with a quotation from the memoir Nothing to be Frightened of by the British atheist Julian Barnes. 
I don't believe in God, but I do miss him. Will Banks has rejected her Pentecostal religion, but she ruminates at length about how she remains haunted by her lost faith. At the end of her memoir, she says that her days of searching are over, but that she would also never stop missing the old days. Her old days meant growing up in rural Maryland, in a blue-collar Pentecostal family that homeschooled, attended tent revivals, and celebrated Hallelujah Eve instead of Halloween. She counts at least 13 rented houses that she lived in, houses with old refrigerators on the front porch and broken cars in the backyard. By late high school, she considered Christianity a mass delusion. She even scribbled a note to herself, November 5th, 1995, Jessica Wilbanks is no longer a Christian. That said, she reminded me of Megan O'Gleben's observation in her memoir, Interior States, about how there was a perverse irony in how she returned obsessively to the religion I spent my early childhood trying to escape. To be a former believer is to perpetually return to the scene of the crime. That is what Will Banks does. For other Loss of Faith memoirs, see Eric Lacks' Faith Interrupted, A Spiritual Journey, Sarah Santillis' Breaking Up with God, A Love Story, Veronica Chatter, Waiting for the Apocalypse, A Memoir of Faith and Family, Rhoda Jansen, Mennonite in a Little Black Dress, A Memoir of Going Home, Marianne Kirby, I Am Hutterite, Eric Reese, An American Gospel on Family, History, and the Kingdom of God, Shulem Dean, All Who Go Do Not Return, and Richard Holloway, Waiting for the Last Bus, Reflections on Life and Death. For films this week, Dan reviews and Breathe Normally. This gritty drama debuted at the 2018 Sundance Festival, where it received rave reviews and won the World Cinematic Dramatic Directing Award. The melancholic tone of the movie is defined by the Icelandic geography. The wind howls across the bleak landscape, the skies are perpetually rainy, and the autumn season makes for early darkness. The story revolves around two very different women whose lives intersect in unexpected ways. Lara is a struggling single mother with a mother back in Norway. We meet her in the opening scene when she can't pay for her groceries at the checkout counter. After eviction, she lives in her car. When Lara gets a job in passport security at the airport, she becomes complicit in arresting a woman named Aja, who's from Guinness-Bissau and traveling on a fake passport. Aja is sent to a detention facility, then 30 days in prison, and then a chaotic refugee center full of other asylum seekers who are waiting deportation hearings. At each step of the way, Aja hears the same refrain. It's the rules, says a prison guard. It's just the system, says a government agent. And then her immigration lawyer. I'm sorry, these are not my rules. But as Lara and Aja befriend each other, we know that this immigration story cannot be reduced to mere government bureaucracy. Lara's little brother, Eldar, with his running, innocent commentary throughout the film, emphasizes this point. At an animal shelter early in the movie, he asks his mother, why do these cats have to live in cages? I watch this movie on Netflix, in English and Icelandic, with English subtitles. And lastly, for poetry this week, Walter Brueggemann's Epiphany. On Epiphany Day, we are still the people walking. We are still people in the dark, and the darkness looms large around us, beset as we are by fear, anxiety, brutality, violence, 
loss, a dozen alienations that we cannot manage. We are, we could be, people of your light. So we pray for the light of your glorious presence as we wait for your appearing. We pray for the light of your wondrous grace as we exhaust our coping capacity. We pray for your gift of newness that will override our weariness. We pray that we may see and know and hear and trust in your good rule. That we may have energy, courage, and freedom to enact your rule through the demands of this day. We submit our day to you and to your rule with deep joy and high hope. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for January 19th. I'm Debbie Thomas.